0: and welcome to the hit recap and review podcast good
1: weird
0: Mahito. <laughs> great i am of course your host john and joining me today the special guest is matt
1: hi hi hello
0: and also joining me is patrick ramirez hello <laughs> And last but certainly not least, we have Jesse Wind.
2: I am a heron,
0: and I am actually a
2: manifestation of you dealing with your own trauma.
0: <laughs> and as you can tell, we are discussing the 2023 film The Boy and the Heron, which is the latest in the Ghibli series of movies, and we watched it in theaters. Isn't that a cool thing that we can say? Hold on. Hey John, wait. Um, we might have to end the recording. I thought you told me to watch The Boy
2: in the Harem. Hmm. Uh did we all not watch this 67-minute long, like, triple X film? Guys, play along. I, um, play along.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, we all watched that too. Tell us everything about it.
2: Okay, so this boy loses his mom, but then he has to go and live with his aunt and fuck her. And then the dad shows up. And he also fucks her. And then a guy in a heron costume shows up. And then it just gets real weird. The old, All the old ladies also made it very. I'm not like super into gilfs, but I just didn't expect it.
1: You know, I only made it like 15 minutes in, to be honest. I felt like I, I kind of got everything I needed out of the experience by then. That's yeah,
0: it was very predictable. I see what you're saying, Matt. Like about five minutes into that that feature film, you realize you know what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it's fine. I've I've seen stuff like that before. You got a I know how it usually goes.
0: You got a sexy aunt with fat mommy milkers. I mean, hundred percent. It can only go one direction. I, I also love every time the Heron uh, comes. <laughs> He's like,
2: I'm busting my head <laughs>
0: Okay, um, so what actually happens in this movie is a boy named Mahito goes to live in the countryside because his mom dies in a fire. Uh, He's dealing with that trauma. He's uh, growing accustomed to living in a new place with a new mom. And he discovers, wouldn't you know it, a magical world. Because this is a Miyazaki movie (laughs) where there are infinite magic worlds for little kids to stumble into. And, yeah, hijinks ensue, and that's basically the movie. Um, there's a twist, yeah. but we'll get to that when we get to it, right? So let's start off with first impressions, if you guys want. We don't have to uh, do that if you'd rather just get right into it and talk about the beginning of this movie.
1: I have a, a quick impression. Yeah. Uh, Miyazaki really does not like birds. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. He hates Um, those fucking flying bitches. I mean, he made so many characters birds in this movie. I thought he liked them. But they're all very creepy. (laughs)
2: I I think he loves birds and that they represent (laughs) uh, the most beautiful parts of life and the balance uh, that nature uh, subsists off of. And they're... uh, Laid in contrast to the war and controversy that humans implicitly cause by being weird, complicated, unnatural beings.
0: You know, I, I thought that one at one. first, too, Jesse. But then if you look really closely in the background, there's actually product placement for Febreze. Oh,
2: OK. I was I was really hoping you were going to say uh, bird pesticide.
0: That's what that's what Febreze is. Yeah. OK. Just ostensibly. Yeah. Febreze kills birds. You didn't hear about that? no. Yeah, it's like bad for the birds. That's why they tell you not to use it. Anyway, that's a different podcast. Um, The bird thing is interesting. Uh
1: (laughs) A lot of of bird shit.
0: Hmm. A lot of lovingly
1: crafted bird shit. It's great every time. Great bit.
2: (laughs) I feel like it has to be important or he wouldn't have put it in there. (laughs) To be every single thing that happens in this, I feel like is exceptionally purposeful. This movie... Uh, took longer to develop and animate than any other Ghibli movie by a factor of like three.
3: Uh, it was also during COVID too.
2: Yeah, so they well, they announced they were making it in 2017 and they were like, we will have this ready by the 2020 Olympics. Uh, note to the listeners, that didn't fucking happen. Uh And so by the time 2020 rolled around, they said they were going to not give themselves a deadline and take as long as they needed to finish this movie, which was a long fucking
3: time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it took him seven years. And by the end, the uh, producer, Mm -hmm. Toshio Suzuki, who was also the inspiration for the Aaron character. uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but he's claimed uh, that it is the most expensive movie ever made in in Japan.
3: Japan. Yeah, I read that. I was surprised. I guess if you take seven years to make a movie, it's going to be the most expensive. I mean, the labor costs alone. Can you imagine? Oh yeah.
1: And, and I mean, Jesse, to your point of like, I think, you know, thinking everything in this matters. Absolutely. They, they didn't take seven years making this because they were, you know, being thoughtless or careless about it. For sure. Um, yeah. is,
2: uh, is Suzuki the, did he pass away?
1: No, he's still, you, okay. You were no thinking of, um, Isawa Takahata who okay. was the inspiration for the, um, for the magician, the the uncle in the tower. Okay. And yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. You probably read right, the same thing that I did, which is that this movie was originally going to be much more about the relationship with the uh, the great uncle, um. But then when Takahata passed away, uh, they kind of retooled it to yeah. focus more on the heron and the boy. Precisely what I was thinking. Thank you. You're welcome. Um. I'm glad you have these names memorized better than I. I don't. I am looking at the tabs on Wikipedia right now. Shut up. I they don't I'm know what I'm
3: <laughs> this is the first Studio Ghibli movie I've ever seen. Is it really? You? Yeah, I've never seen oh, another one. Oh my god. That is wild.
0: <laughs>
2: that actually makes me sad.
3: That kind of makes me sad, to be honest. No, this is great. This is so good. Well, it's I not started good. watching <laughs> Howl's Moving Castle, but I didn't finish it. Okay. Oh boy. Well, I liked it, but I just didn't finish it.
0: I, I do want to move through the movie at some point. So I do want to <laughs> talk about the opening sequence, which I just loved because... It was so relatable, you know, like whomst among us hasn't woken from a dead sleep to find that their mother is burning in a building. I mean, hey, if we're going to get real deep about it, John, uh, me, not Since literally, the uh, I
2: mean, literally, um, yeah, no, it's pretty whack. It's pretty wild. And uh, this is set during World War Two, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he wakes up uh, while it, the city he lives in uh, has just a hospital has been bombed and his mother is burning alive in that building. And as we're reminded by characters in this movie later, he doesn't get to say goodbye to his mom. He doesn't get to see his mom. He doesn't uh, for the know best. <laughs> that she actually passed away.
3: If you are going to. We don't actually know she's dead. Yeah. We just see the building on fire f- far down the street and then like the rest of the neighborhood catches on fire. That was
2: a frenetic, like visceral. I think I'm misusing visceral a little bit, but so does everybody. That was a that 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 the way that was animated in like a rush and a blur as he stormed through those people and through a fire to try and like rescue his mother was quite a way to open a fucking Ghibli movie. I think that was probably, Man. like yeah. the most pop that one of their movies has ever started with. I think it's they, um, they rotoscoped yeah.
1: that. Sorry, just to jump in to help make it extra stressful and, and fluid. No way. Yeah, I
3: believe so.
2: God damn, that's cool as fuck, dude. I was going to say it felt, like a,
3: it felt like a punch in the face, honestly, <clears throat> especially since the name of the movie in English is, or the English, it's not even translation. It's like the English version of the title is The Boy and the Heron, but the literal Japanese title was How to Live, right? How do you live? Um, which... How do you live? is the yeah. name of a novel from 1937 that was
1: hugely influential on Miyazaki growing up and right. is in this movie.
3: Um, but yes, not, but yes, it's yes, not, yes. this story is not that story. It's, not, it's just no, like inspiration no, for the director. inspired by. Yeah. But, um, but what I was getting at is like, there's a bunch of kids in the movie theater when I saw it. And I was like with their parents, you know, the parents brought them. And by the end of the movie, I was like, man, I, I wonder what those kids are feeling because it's a it's a heavy movie and it's not as light as I would th- you'd be deceived into thinking by just the name of the movie like the boy and the heron oh they're gonna have adventures and play with fishes and stuff and it's like oh no this kid's mom is literally burning to death right now in the opening scene and then it's like crazy after that. I thought about those kids
2: does not shy away from the fact that children aren't stupid and that they do mm-hmm. have a depth inside of them that most people don't respect. And even if a child doesn't understand his true, like, emotional depths and the powers of them, they still feel deeply. Mm-hmm. And I think For that's sure. the, one of the main, like, I wanted to say, like, the thesis of this movie is feeling. It is how does one cope with uh, loss and um, trauma and... This movie runs on a dream logic, which I will bring up more as we continue. But to tie into what you're saying, I'm not sure as an adult, this movie is easy to sit there and follow if you're going to pick apart. No,
3: it's, it's not. It's factually, actually, but as a yeah, kid, watching it more feels, than once.
2: you're just going to keep feeling things over and over and over and over again, because that is what this movie does. Every single scene is an individual thought process on how one deals with loss and trauma and then trying to apply logic to thread them all together is uh, a task, but to just be a child and let that wash over you, I bet is a really powerful
3: experience for them. I don't know. I did hear them saying a lot. What is that? (laughs) Imagine being their parent being like, Oh God, I don't even know what that is. (laughs) Like when you first meet the heron, when the man like shoves his nose through in the teeth, Uh... You're like yes. what is that? And it's like, uh, that's that's a man inside a bird.
1: <laughs> what? Well, and, and just to piggyback off this a little bit, uh, Miyazaki's on the record of saying one of the reasons why he wanted to make this film was to explain to his grandson that uh, he wasn't going to be around. You know. Oh yeah. Fairly, hopefully not super soon, but yeah, that that was kind of the thought behind it. Um, it's also really unusual for one of Miyazaki's movies because it's it's very autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, his mother traumatically died of a tuberculosis, um, which is something that comes up again and again in his other movies, uh, that comes up in my neighbor Totoro, uh, that comes in up in uh, the Wind rises and probably a few others. I can't think of right now, but, uh, you know, as a young boy, Miyazaki was living in the city and they had to flee to the countryside during the war, just like in this, um, Miyazaki's real life father also worked at a, uh, like a, uh, an air munitions factory, something related to producing, you know, fighter planes, mm-hmm. um, just like the dad in this. So I don't, know, it, it it's kind of neat to see him putting himself in it as both kind of the, the boy and the old man, I would say, and probably totally. a bit of the heron too. And you, you said the, uh, the regular translation of that book is how do we live? How do you live? And how do you it, live? Yeah, and, and it is very explicitly based on kind of a conversation with the young men of the time of how do you live in a world like this? How do you live in a world where, you know, all, yes. all that has happened has happened and what kind mm-hmm. of a world do you want to try to create? Um I, I was looking into it a little bit earlier. I haven't read it, but uh, apparently the, the main character is, he has a nickname that is inspired by Copernicus. And one of the conversations was that you can look at the galaxy is a thing that the earth is just one celestial body within, or you can look at it at where the earth is the literal center of the universe. And depending on what kind of idea you embrace, that changes on a very fundamental level, how you experience the world itself and mm-hmm. everything just kind of branches off from there. It's a way of deciding what kind of world are you in? What kind of a world do you want to shape? And I think that's yeah. very true of this movie.
2: Exactly. That's what I was going to say is I think that title runs like in my this is dealing with grief and trauma and how you process those things I think how do you live is a pretty on that like hitting it on the head question to posit on like how are are you going to leave this place better than you found it how are you Hmm. gonna respond to hate is it with more hate how are you going to respond to love is it with more love and I'll, uh, we'll continue kind of marching through this story, but that's, a, that's something I want to keep bringing up over and over and over again, is you just get to see what people appreciate in life. From the start of the movie, when Mahito um, gets to move into his new house with his new family, you see the elders are appreciative of small treats that the father has brought. They're like cans of uh, meats and fish and little things that they haven't been able to have in a really long time mean a lot to them while they're dealing with the grief uh, and the tragedy of the surrounding war. Um,
0: I have a question for Patrick. Mm. How did you feel when
3: the aunt said, I'm going to be your new mom? Uh, I was thinking the kid is like, fuck you are. <laughs> so I thought that he was going to say. Uh, the kid's reaction, uh, Mojito? Mah- yeah, Mahito. Mahito. yeah Mahito. Um He just seems very like not dead inside but just very just kind of empty like n- without direction after his mom dies and then he gets th- kind of thrusted like no now we're moving to the countryside cuz he's kind of like full of safe. resentment and hatred and anger a little bit maybe like I mm-hmm. didn't I didn't get like resentment and hate hatred and anger I saw people saying that online but I didn't get that when I was watching he just seemed like empty and like kind of just sullen to me and just kind of like yeah. accepting whatever people are saying and not really just being engaged with life is how I saw it
2: I would agree um, with that
3: interpretation. He got no
2: closure with this thing. And even though he has a caring father, I don't think he's someone that has potentially the capacity in him as a father to sit down with his son and help him process this. The way his, yeah, his dad father's is like saying wrong is things is trying yeah. to move forward. A new mm-hmm. wife, continue to be prosperous. Get, and he's, he's not uncaring. He wants to get his son out of that environment. He wants to put him in a better place. He wants to support his family, but his dad seems to, and not in like a super insulting way, but like use his like affluence to try and better. It's such a weird thing for him to go like, Oh, I know you're like sad about your mom dying still and moving to a new place is really difficult. But if I drive you to school in a big fancy car, that'll start like your new life off real fun. And people will think you're nice and cool and interesting. And it's like, no dude, driving me to school in a big fancy car is not the thing that's going to at all make me feel better. But his dad wants to help. He just doesn't know how. So, of course, his son is going to be, like, unresolved in all of these, like, tragic things he's having to deal with.
3: I was going to say, it doesn't help that he's married (laughs) his wife's sister who looks Mm. identical to uh, her sister. So, that is also probably not helping with any closure that... For and sure. She's already when pregnant needs.
1: when Maito meets her for the first time. Yeah. I thought,
3: oh, with the, putting the hand on the belly. And I was like, this is probably not what he, he felt very uncomfortable that it's, whole time. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah.
2: But she's not trying to make him feel that way. And I would like to point. She is like such a sweet, kind, patient woman who sincerely cares about people. And mm-hmm, she may yeah. be like reading the room wrong on that. But yeah, as I bring up Mulchin, or as I brought up before, all the things this movie is microcosms, little pearls of feeling, over and over and over again. And every time you stop and dissect each scene individually, it is this weird, nuanced uh, question that is being posed to you of like, how would you, or how would anyone feel and react in this moment? And it's like, yeah, he's holding on to this tra- unresolved tragedy, but also this woman is only being loving and kind to him, and he grows as a human throughout this movie to understand and like appreciate that how important love is, how important kindness is, how important it is to put people first and bravely in the middle of this movie, when he's confronted with uh, like hatred, like the one moment she is like under this spell and is like, you will never be my son. His only retort to that is with love. And that's something that he learned. He's so dismissive of her for half the movie. And then well, the other half of the movie, he realizes what a special, important, kind person that she is. And that, like, taking care of people and caring for people that care about you that much is more almost more important than anything. Like, he, he quits moping and fucking. I was trying to think of a better way to say this. Uh, uh, uh How do I? gonna say nut up and i really would like a more eloquent way to say this but he really when when push comes to shove he grows and makes the right decision and he quits moping and he goes out of his way to help his new family
1: i mean the thing about maito is that he he doesn't have agency at at the beginning of the movie right Mm -hmm. like he is absolutely completely captive to his circumstances um you know he he was living one way and then the worst thing that had ever happened to him probably the worst thing that will ever happen to him happened uh, which is his mother you know dying horribly and then he gets whisked away to some house he's never been to to meet some aunt he's apparently never met who's already pregnant with a sibling um and
0: and also this house is full of hideous old
3: women <laughs>
1: A lot of oh, um, yeah. beautiful old
3: women, grotesque oh, monsters,
1: oh. <laughs> yeah, grotesque
3: they're, monster people,
1: very curious bodies. Yeah. They they um, haunt
3: this palace or whatever. They're, they're <laughs> ghastly, yeah. He draw he drew birds way prettier than those people. But <laughs> yeah, helping clean the house. I, that was the joke I was gonna make. Is like you said, he hates birds. I think he hates old women. He, Jesus, He definitely. He made them look like wooden dolls or monsters.
2: <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I think it's adorable how the the caricaturization that he does of old age because he, it's in all of his movies. Whenever he sho- shows grandfatherly grandmotherly figures. Their, their age is exaggerated to the extreme on their face. They are just giant wrinkly, huge nose, like one toothed. but they're sweet. All of those old ladies are sweet as fuck. Like, yeah. No, the it, thing it,
0: that makes them so grotesque to me is not like, cause like getting a bigger nose and ears and stuff is a thing like that actually happens to human beings. But what Miyazaki does is he makes their head like as big as the rest of their body. And that to me just is like a horror movie villain or something. Like it's rough to look at. I I don't find it very cute is what I'll say. Oh my goodness, John. That's um, I, you're
2: fair. You're allowed to have your opinions. When I saw those old people, that was the moment I felt like I was actually in a Ghibli movie at the beginning, it was just like anime, anime. This is beautiful. This is beautiful beyond reproach. But it didn't feel like a Ghibli movie until the giant, goofy old people showed up. And then I was like, now I know where the fuck I'm at.
0: I mean, I, I, I don't want to say I don't like it because I like spooky, scary shit. Jesus Christ. But I still <laughs> I think, think it's
2: spooky, scary. I think it care- that you remember when you were like super, super, super little and seeing things that were just like. Seeing an old person being old looked weird and felt different. Like when you're six, seven, like old people feel like aliens. They look so different. You can hardly comprehend how they got to look that way. I mean, that's yeah, what old people look like old
0: people me. scared me when I was a kid, too. So okay. that's what I'm saying. Okay. OK, let's unpack that in a <laughs> bonus episode. I mean, they still scare me, but now in an existential way. So anyway, we're getting used to living in this new place. There's this giant estate. Uh, that's surrounded by woods and pretty much as soon as he gets here and starts dealing with the old ladies and his new mom and all that. He's also dealing with the heron. The heron is pretty much immediately up in his business.
2: Yes. And. I think the heron is a direct representation of his trauma, and this movie is about him learning to not fight it, but to accept it and work with it. I would like to posit that now. (laughs) And so, yes, as soon as he has he's back in this place and he has time to himself, it immediately becomes the thing that uh, encompasses his whole life. It becomes a thing he uh, literally has to fight almost immediately Um, to me. He ends up
0: essentially getting taken out of school, too, like. So he's just yeah. sitting around all day with nothing to do. And so he's crafting a bow and arrow out of like nails and reeds and pieces of bamboo and trying to literally kill this heron who's been, you know, pecking around outside the window, walking around on the roof and all this shit.
3: I mean, that's after he gets saved from the heron by the uh, by his aunt. Right. Doesn't she shoot her bow and arrow and staves off the the heron mm-hmm. when, he, when he's like yelling at him mm. and stuff?
2: Yeah, draws him in with his, like, siren song,
3: and is like... Oh, uh, uh, it was super yeah. creepy at the beginning when he's like, Save me, or, yeah, save me, save me. Uh, yeah. Mahito or something. It, yeah, yeah that, I, I don't know if
1: the heron is, like, the trauma to me, but it, it, it's it, it's frustration. It, it finally allows Mahito to find a direction to pour all of his frustrations and his, you know, his dissatisfaction with his current lot in life. Mm Because, you know, going back to the agency thing a little bit, the first thing that he really does out of his own agency is to bash himself in the head with a rock. Um, Yeah. And they don't really, you know, he he doesn't articulate why later on he he refers to this as proof of the malice within him, Mm -hmm. uh, almost like an original sin thing. But I think it's fair to say, in part, he's trying to get out of going to that school that he doesn't like. Nobody there likes him either. Um, And that's when he is really able to engage with the harem because, you know, his dad is literally just not present. His dad is working all day long um, and his new mom is trying her best, but he is not giving her a fucking inch. Uh, he's not acting out in a way that could get called on. He is being unswervingly polite. He is saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and just, just disconnected, yeah. not giving her a whiff of an opening, not not even by getting mad. Um, and she's so, also
0: eight months pregnant.
1: Yeah, and, and she's sick, um, you know, in a way that we find out is also making her a little delirious um, and, you know, maybe even kind of dissociating from herself. But the heron, um, by antagonizing him is what allows him to finally kind of get off his ass, get out of his room and uh, touch grass uh, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) in a way that is what ultimately helps him mature enough as a person that he can, you know, he can act heroically. He can make decisions for himself. And when an authority figure as great as his uncle, who is also the, you know, a cosmically powerful magician says, I want you to take over for me. He says, I'm not going to do that, but thanks. For um, sure. Earlier on, I think he would have just said yes, sir, no, sir. And that would, sure. that would have been that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For for me, that one, I was just like, I think it's interesting to like, like, so first there is no proper interpretation of this film. Uh, Except mine. Th- there is, this is just all of us trying our best to find thoughts and feelings within a lot of small moments like strung together. But I, I see the uncle. He, he is someone who has uh grief and trauma in his life. And the way he deals with it is escapism. He chooses not to invest himself in people more. He decides to do exactly the opposite and protect himself by creating a world of fiction by like reading books and disassociating from anyone. He doesn't ask for help. and, I think, that, like, you're right, the original Mahito we meet would have been happy to live in a world of fiction if it eased his pain. But by the end of the movie, I think he grows in a way where he realizes that's not healthy. Like, it's not good. It causes problems for more than just yourself. Because we also see as the great uncle creates this uh, fanciful world, even he himself looks inward and realizes what a mess he has made. And he is begging Mahito to do better than him and to save him. And throughout a lot of this, we see like particularly the birds being tragic victims of someone else not dealing with their trauma. Well,
1: yeah, I um I I think that Miyazaki is probably engaging in a little bit of um, self-reflection there. Um, cause I, it's been like a month or two since I've seen this film, so I'm, I'm a little fuzzy, but I think that the old man is looking his at this hand, world he's man. created and, and he's kind of unsure if it was actually helping anything or if it was just reproducing, uh, the kind of evils that he was trying to help expunge. And I think that that is Miyazaki kind of saying the same thing of his own films that, uh, he is wanting to leave the world a better place, but in depicting some of the, the things that he's depicted, you know, some of these evils and, and wrongs, being a bit concerned over whether or not he has simply reproduced them and uh, mm-hmm. helped preserve them rather than help mitigate them. But ultimately, it it's not going to be – it's not going to be something that he can know of himself and it's not going to be up to him anyway. It's going to be up to the next generation because that's how it always goes. Um, um, so, so, yeah.
0: I'm glad that you brought that up, Matt, because I – Sort of the most interesting kernel of this movie to me was looking at Mahito and the Granduncle as two diverging paths of Miyazaki. Like, they're Mm -hmm. both kind of uh, creator insert (laughs) characters. They're Mm -hmm. self-analogues in a way, but two different sides of the same coin, almost. No, I I completely agree. Because Mahito is the version that's like... Uh, I'm good actually. <laughs> I'm not going to engage in this fantasy, you know. And then mm-hmm. the granduncle is like obsessed with it to the point that it's like a compulsion and uh mm-hmm, yeah. I, th- this that that is my one complaint to this movie actually is that I wish it had more of the granduncle in it cuz I think that Mahito is so much more interesting in like next to the granduncle. Agreed.
1: Mm. I
2: but I also I love... I adore this movie, but I do... Mm-hmm. I am curious what the original intent was when the granduncle were to be a larger character in it, but we do... Man, this movie has, like, fucking fruit, man. There's so much to chew on. Um, I have a question for everybody. Well, because, one, this podcast is going to run long. Um, I love that. Uh, two, before we continue dissecting every single part of this movie, deservingly, uh... What was one of your favorite, or did you notice or have a favorite moment where you were like, oh, this is the best animation I've ever seen? This is what happens when real ass prof the, the motherfucking platinum SS tier, the best. I'm gonna redo that S tier? I don't you're not allowed to, I'm not gonna say that anymore. Uh, but I watched scenes in this and was like, these people are clearly flexing. Um they're the, Mahito has a robe on it that just has giant like cro- like plus sign crosses, and there's little things like that where a normal animator would have uh, shied away because they're like, I don't want to have to realistically portray a geometric shape as it folds across the wrinkles of cloth as this person like moves around. Uh, I think there's a term for that from like Roger Rabbit. I think it was called like bumping the light or some shit. If This is really specific, but if you remember that opening scene in Roger Rabbit with the baby, they're in a room where the floor is like checkerboard, black and white, like perfect geometric shapes. And there was a moment where the producers were like, don't waste money doing extra shit with this animation. Like we got to get through this and get this movie made. And one of the animators was like, I'm going to make sure he bumps into the light in this scene. So the entire time they have to animate it it as a light, like swinging back and forth across all the objects in the scene. And they have to perfectly render the checkerboard floor. And it's like, God damn. And I felt that way so many times in this movie. Did, did anything in particular stand out to y'all where you were just really fucking impressed with this animation or the art style?
3: I mean, uh, Matt talked about at the beginning, but the fire scene, uh, at the very beginning, which makes sense that if it feels rotoscope because it's got three million pieces flying around all the time. Uh, that part was really uh, eye-catching, and also the when they go to like the delivery room for natsuki I think, mm-hmm. and she's in that room that has that. It's just like this lamps or these like hanging lamp things with all these paper hanging around it, and you're kind of like, oh, I wonder what that's doing. And then it starts spinning around and they start flying and then they get kind of covers everybody up with like, like mummies with the paper flying around. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and, uh,
1: yeah. Oh, sorry. Just to explain the paper a little bit. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that was meant to refer to something called uh, Ofuda, which is, um, it, it's a, a, I think it's a Shinto thing. It might be Buddhist, uh, in Japan, but they're basically these paper, uh, talismans that are these kind of long vertical, um, strips of paper with writing on them and they can be meant to, you know, ward off spirits or seal spirits within something. Um, you, you see them a lot in like shrines or, you know, associated things like that. You also what see them in blank uh, though.
0: Well, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. <laughs> I was going to say, you also see them all the time in Japanese video games. Cause mm-hmm. they usually give you like plus two charisma or whatever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, my moment really quick was when, uh, Maito's first kind of tagging along with the heroine to go into the tower. And Mm -hmm. you see, I mean, I I loved all of the tower interior stuff. I thought that was really neat Um, and and a a wonderful transition from uh, a more, you know, beautiful but still very realistically grounded place to something much more fantastical. But the tunnel with all the electric lights flickering on that then gets Uh, sealed behind him when yeah like a wall drops in but it's also a bookshelf. yes um and i know that that tied in really well for me with the the really the only detail we know about this grand uncle was that he was very smart uh and then he read too many books and that made him go insane yeah
0: yeah, a common
3: occurrence in my experience that has
0: happened in real life to people i mean it'll Mm -hmm. it'll get you Okay, um my favorite was the sailing on the uh, on the ocean. Mm, Just yeah. the way the waves were animated and the boat on the waves.
3: Mwah, perfect. Fuck yeah. Uh, Man, I, even you remember when it shows it from underneath? Mm, yeah. I do remember uh-huh. that? And you see like the oar when she's like I was like, "Oh, that's such a cool little detail I would have never
0: We Fuck must yeah, about stay that. on track though and keep moving forward. So, the inciting event is that the ant who what what is her name again? I don't want to I think it's Natsuki. Uh, Natsuki.
2: Natsuko. Natsuko.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Natsuko goes into the woods (laughs) and gets lost. And all the old ladies are looking for her. And kind of to what um, Matt was saying, this is new Mahito. He's not moping anymore. He's like, I'm going to go find my damn aunt and bring her home. How about that? Mm -hmm. And he does the damn thing. So, he goes into the woods with uh, Kiriko, who is an old lady for now. And... That's when he gets sucked into the magical magical world that we all get to live in with him. And that's essentially when the uh, the water animation that I was talking about happens as well. But the first thing that happens is that he gets pushed into a grave by a bunch of pelicans or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He ends up.
2: Yeah. There's this weird painterly gate holding back, uh, holding him back from. Uh, a spooky place calling to him and they burst through and she has to come and say golden him. gate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I thought it was interesting when she saved him, how she says, don't turn your back. Um, I don't know if that's a c- cultural thing or what, like don't turn your back on a spirit and it can't get you. <laughs> um,
1: I mean, I, I interpreted the gate as kind of a, a passage in and out of like an underworld type thing. And, and that's one of the rules of the Greek underworld is you know, Orpheus and I think Eurydice were going to get to leave hell. He, w- he was saving her from hell, but the instruction was that he could not look back at her. Uh, and when he did, um, he fucked her over and she had to stay there. Um, so I don't know. I, I thought he might have been riffing on that kind of idea of like, you're you're transitioning to somewhere else and you have to look forward because if you don't, something could happen. Um,
3: I I thought it was more uh, simple and it was like, Pelicans are dangerous, uh, man-eating birds, and you never turn your back on a dangerous dinosaur, <laughs> an evolved dinosaur.
2: I I also, I kind of saw it as um almost a dividing line where we have now entered a magical place. We're out of the real world and he wants to make sure you know this is about to get Ghibli as fuck immediately. So it's not just a lady comes and saves him. It's a lady comes and saves him and, and enacts a ritual to visually... Uh, divide where you were and where you are now, because in this new place, you're not going to understand how things work, and I, I just, I love, and it's a short ritual too, it's not like this overblown, it doesn't take minutes and minutes and minutes, it's like 20 seconds, where she's like, draws a circle in the ground dro- like maybe drop something, walk backwards with me, we get to the ship, and you're out of there, and I'm just like, it felt I, I, that was another moment where I was like, oh, this is getting this mm-hmm. is going Ghibli, baby I, uh, I think yeah. she
1: was dropping salt, which uh, mm-hmm. is commonly held to have anti-spirit properties. <laughs> if you ever mm-hmm. need to create a protective circle, uh, you should do it with salt. Yeah.
3: That's across like every culture. <laughs>
1: yeah, it came up in one piece uh, in our other podcast, if you all yeah. remember that. I, um, I liked
0: when he got to this this magical world. And I liked the addition of there being some creatures that are native to it and some that kind of got in here from the outside world. Um, which the pelicans are going to be an ongoing threat slash Mm -hmm. concern. So they're introduced right away. And then we are introduced to some of the natives who aren't allowed to kill any of the animals or creatures. So they have to buy fish from uh, Mm -hmm. Cutico.
1: That was really interesting to me.
3: Um, There was the Wadawada, of course, very cute. You know, it was never, and this movie doesn't explain a whole lot, but I was kind of baffled by those natives that live there. And I was like, what are these people? Like, are they just like spirit people? Why? You know, I was wondering about that because they don't really show up ever again. They're just mentioned in passing that. Oh, yeah, I got that you, uh, you, you 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 get this fish and then we feed them. And then that's kind of our duty. For sure. It seemed like
2: a weird liminal space. Yeah. Where those people were referred to as lost souls, which is a thing that comes up in a lot of fiction where it's not necessarily unresolved business, but they're dead and don't seemingly want to go to the afterlife. Next so there's some these, these people that can't really take care of themselves. And the one person who does take care of them is someone who is human and as human, a lot, there's, there's such an interesting contrast between anyone who is human in this world or not and how they behave, what their agency is, like what, because like in this new world, the humans are the only ones doing okay. Uh, Everyone else is a victim of another person's circumstance. A man who didn't handle his trauma well created this fucking fiction. And in reality, when you don't handle your trauma well, it does affect and hurt other people around you, whether you expect it to or not. And the humans are also the only people that do anything to help one another. And so it's like this one lady who we don't know why has landed in this position is someone who cares. And so she, for no other reason, it seems cause they, well, I don't think they pay her.
1: I well, the- it, 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 I think you earlier said dream logic. And I, and I think that that's very much what's going on here, but like, mm-hmm. the, you're correct that this is like a, a created reality. And we see later on that this world is somehow constructed and represented by these blocks that are very precariously stacked and correlate to the tower itself. And we see the the magician reconfigure it like he's playing Jenga with himself almost. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because, you know, the woman who is collecting the fish to trade with the spirits is the maid Kiriko who entered the world at the same time as Mahito. And, and I think it kind of begs the question, did, did this young woman who's very capable and, and knows Everything about this world, did she actually exist before her older self fell into you know the floor along with the heron and, and Maito? Um and then likewise we also meet another person later on, a, a girl named Himi, who is a, a pyromancer, and we find out later that she is Maito's mother. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's playing with this isn't really a real term. It's from Final Fantasy VIII, but in my mind, I call it time compression, where mm-hmm. time is no longer occurring linearly. Um, mm-hmm. Cause and effect are no longer have a strong relationship with one another, and mm-hmm. F- mm-hmm. things can be the past and the future and the present all at once, and they're all just kind of scrambled Absolutely. together. Uh, yeah, England I agreed. Just the, the last thing I want to say on this is, like, while watching the movie, I was really fascinated by the parakeets, because I I think on one hand, you can interpret the parakeets as having this sophisticated um, kind of quasi fascistic society the whole time that we gradually learn about. But I think the other interpretation is that these things just show up all of a sudden and in a very dreamlike fashion progress through like a thousand years of history in real time. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, like the parakeet King didn't necessarily exist before we saw him. Um, the whole film is like that for me. It, it, it's, he's, this is, I think easily the most opaque and difficult to parse film he's ever done. Um, nice. Yes. Yeah. He knows how to tell coherent and easily understood stories. And he chose not to do that here. Yes. Um,
0: I also think it's probably the source material is already like that. To be honest, <laughs> the
1: book is very different. Actually, this is a, a totally original story. Yeah. I mean, from what I heard. Yeah. I, I, Okay, so you're saying the
0: book doesn't have like the like ambiguity around like time like this does? No, no not it's the, not like
3: related to this movie.
1: There was like, specifically. It, apparently they they got like the grandson of the guy who wrote the novel in for a meeting and that guy's like I was very confused by what this movie is. <laughs> I don't understand it, but sounds great.
0: Um, I just I, wanted to chime in and say that that was also really interesting for me just Starting to question what the relationship of time is, because to me, it seemed like this world existed out outside of time. So mm-hmm. whenever you go in or out of it, you're not necessarily going to go back into the real world in the time that you think. And also, I think there's a lot of strong evidence that this universe might actually be creating or influencing things or, I guess, determining the real world in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like you might think it's an offshoot of the main reality, but it's also acting dialectically back and forth. So um, that that was interesting because the, the whole thing with the fire, it just it opens so many questions, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did, was the fire caused by something that happened while Heaney was in this other world?
1: I don't know. Yeah, it's so, also yeah, it, it goes from the, the source of her demise to the source of her empowerment. Yes, um, absolutely and by the end of it she tells her
2: son like i am not scared of the fire anymore like
1: yeah
2: and i don't have any regrets
1: I'm, I'm gonna for live sure. my life however it goes and she goes through the other door to a totally different time absolutely
2: a lot of this it one i would like to elaborate in case anyone listening would like when I, when, when we say dream logic it's one of those things where when you wake up in the morning and you uh, uh tell someone about your dreams usually it's this weird condensed version of imagery and feelings. And you remember how you felt when you were doing something, but you're not always like, yeah, I don't know what the reason was when I ended up on a boat fishing with the young version of my maid who I would have never known what she looked like then. But like, I got to talk to the young version of her and she told me about my mother and I got to have all these like these feelings, subconscious feelings manifest into imagery and locations and events that when I say them to you out loud, sound almost completely nonsensical. That's the kind of dream logic a lot of this floats with where you just have to take it scene by scene because individually, I, I feel like the um, the depth and validity of the feelings from scene to scene are very real and very relatable, and it's almost as if every scene is asking you a new question about how you would handle this interaction or these feelings, or or there's some uh, part of processing something. But, but which by the by the end of this, many people, if not at least mahito if not more than mahito have processed and come to terms with uh, tr- the, uh moving beyond their trauma and letting them control him to the degree where he is now fine and he has he has gotten to say goodbye whether Like we take this literally or not, he's gotten to process his trauma with his mother, say goodbye to her. He knows in his heart that she loves him and always will and always has. He knows that she's not scared anymore. He doesn't have to worry about her anymore. And he accepts the love of another person into his life that all they want to do is also love and care for him. And at the beginning, all of those are scary things that are almost like unfathomable for him to have to deal with. And by the end of this journey, he is a whole new person that sees value in the world in a different way. Um, yeah. Okay. Super, super interesting.
0: Let's let's briefly touch on the wada wada. Uh, we haven't heard from Patrick in a minute, so do you want to kind of give us a rundown on everything that was going on there with these cute little guys?
3: Yeah, the uh, marshmallow people, also known as the Wada Wada, um they show up after they're done fishing and they drag that what uh, seems like a small fish, but then in, when you see it dragging out of the water, you're like, oh my god, this is like a whale. And they feed the spirit people or the lost spirit people and then you see the watawata show up and they're, hung, they're hungy too. Um, so, then I think when it's nighttime is when it gets more interesting and you see these watawata that are full from eating fish guts uh they waddle out to the ledge and (laughs) they self inflate and start flying toward the stars and you're kind of like oh man this is this is an insane dream world what's going on right now it's so cute and
0: beautiful and amazing (laughs) they're very cute looking and And i like how they inflate
3: and then like float down and inflate again (laughs) And then it's explained, I think this is when they explain at this point before the pelicans show up that, uh, they're like spirits or they're going to turn into sp- people into, basically mm-hmm, on the other yeah. side of the, of this realm. However, that happens when they float up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like, and, Oh, that's cute. And then hungry pelicans show up <laughs> and they like yeah. to nom nom on the, uh, wada wadas and Wait. they start chowing down.
2: I, I think this whole scene is fascinating for so many reasons. Uh, Especially like, so it's this one, this, a woman who has, she is, oh man. So my, so, so interesting. Her teaching him how to carve a fish, which is. Um, oh, that was
3: visceral too. For absolutely. But it also for like Deeper. a really
2: like deep purpose. Like the, that was, she's like, you gotta be careful even with the guts because that is what we feed the wada, wada with. And so she's teaching him this like how to handle this very yucky, gross thing. But in, in doing so being like, when you handle the yucky, gross parts of life, you can grow and help other people. Like Mm -hmm. you processing your feelings or your trauma or things you go through can help other people around you flourish. And the parts of life, a lot of the things I see in this are like the bird shittings everywhere. There's just like parts of life that aren't like, sterilize the way that people like to pretend the real world is. you got to get your hands dirty. you got to do the hard work. And she's trying to teach him how to do the hard work and contribute to, like, an ecosystem and a society and to not, like... And then the end of that is also, like, even when you try your hardest, everything doesn't succeed perfectly. But even though something doesn't succeed perfectly doesn't mean you didn't help and there wasn't great success. And so... You, she does feed the Wadawata, and as you said, then uh, the pelicans show up and start devouring them like they're baby sea turtles running to the sea. Um, and he's having a hard time processing that because he's still beginning this journey. Some things are still black and white, and he starts screaming at this unknown pyromancer who starts shooting fire into the sky to, to, to ward off the pelicans. And he's like, stop doing that. You're hurting the Wadawada. Wada. And which is true, by the way, she was yeah.
0: actually hurting
2: them. <laughs> she was lighting Absolutely. some of them on fire, yeah. but, but
3: overall. things
2: aren't clean and perfect. And like I said, like you, you're not going to succeed this with 100%, uh, a hundred percent, uh, approve not approval. Like you can't be perfect in all scenarios, but she still did save them. If she would have, uh, it, with, inaction would have come all of their demise. And, like I said, there's microcosms of things where it's like, would it have been worth doing nothing then? Like, if you're not going to d- handle this perfectly, are you going to lie in an action? Uh, like, and that continues when we get to speak to the Pelican. It's And every yeah. small moment of this has a nuance and a duality to it to, to be learned from.
0: Yeah. I actually want to get uh, Matt's opinion on the Willem Dafoe, uh, Pelican.
1: Cool. Um, yeah. Um, so I said in Japanese, so I, I did not get to experience that, but, okay. <laughs> um, the pelican in question is an older pelican that is uh, very badly injured and, and dying and, uh, explains to Maito that, um, you know, basically, Hey, don't, don't think too poorly of us because we're not of this world. And we eat the warawara because it's the only thing here that we can eat. And it, we have to choose between that and starving. And, um, I, I think that, it's interesting because Japan has like a lot of cultural, you know, traditions of Shintoism and and Buddhism. And they really have this idea of every, everything having some sort of a a soul or a spirit, uh, or even like a, a divine presence. And I think that that is an interesting tension because you're very aware of the worth of a thing that you have to consume in order to live. Um, and this is really just kind of positing that, you know, the, the pelicans are not just these mindlessly antagonistic birds. Maybe some of them are, uh, kind of like in, in Princess Mononoke, there's the, the idea that the older animals are intelligent, but you know, the, the old boar in that complains that the younger boars are getting stupid and, uh, small. And eventually they'll revert to, to mere beasts. And, and I feel like we are seeing that with the birds here. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, and, Sorry, really quick. I I just wanted to um, piggyback off some earlier discussion really quick. I wanted to say that the Wara Wara are really interesting because it kind of posits this dimension, not as an afterlife, but like a pre-life, a dimension that happens before life. Because I I don't think this is necessarily a place where dead souls go to after existing, but it it is definitively Mm -hmm. a place where at least some souls are before, uh, which is cool and unusual. And I just want to say the fish thing is also interesting to me too, because Japan is uh, it's an archipelago, right? It's a series of islands and fishing is extremely important in Japan. Seafood is very important in Japan. And by pure coincidence, I watched another movie for the first time today called Lou over the wall. And that takes place in like a fishing town. And one of the ideas that comes up is like the only real business in town is a seafood um, plant And there are these older people complaining that young people don't know how to clean fish anymore. Um, And in terms of, like you said, a a thing that you have to do and and learn how to get your hands dirty sometimes, I think that having that being, you know, preparing a fish uh, has a lot of cultural resonance in Japan, specifically in a way that I I hadn't really thought of until you brought it up. Oh, nice. Yeah, I I wouldn't,
2: I did not even realize that either, which, yeah, that that, I think that Shows more evidence of this, like ecosystem that people can live in balance with and concert with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. You, you brought up the, the Pelican <clears throat> one. I did watch the dub twice. I'll, I'm going to I'm gonna do the, the subtitled yeah. one later. But it's, this is so hard to parse narratively for me. I couldn't even have my attention taken away to read <laughs> subtitles. No, that's a very so, fair point. Yeah. Totes. So I went in the first time, let it wash over me. And then I went to go see it a second time. And the second time I saw it, I only sat there trying to dissect like – Form opinions because I was oh, so overstimulated the first time, I couldn't even begin to really form opinions on what I was thinking about certain scenes. Um, but with the pelican, Mahito runs out and is angry, and he has a shovel, and he is going to like decapitate this pelican, seemingly, uh, until he begins speaking to it and learns of his struggles. And then uh, it becomes n- instantly not black and white anymore. And as you said, he's like, dude, we were brought here, we don't have anything else to eat. We've tried to leave and we can't leave. And this has become such a problem for us. Our young are forgetting how to fly. Mm-hmm. And it's like they didn't choose any of this. And then he I think he, he begs for him to end his life because mm-hmm. he's struggling so much. Yeah. That Willem Dafoe performance fucking kills, dude. It fucked.
0: I'm going to say I was going to say that
2: (laughs) you can't tell it's him until like the like second to last word is when a Willem Dafoe voice cuts into this performance for a single moment.
0: That's a uh, little teaser for Willem to February, everybody. Hey, oh, Okay, Um. so he does bury the the pelican also. Also, isn't it interesting that you were talking about the fishing culture in in Japan, Matt? Mm -hmm. The heron and the pelican are both fishing birds.
1: Mm hmm. It is, How yeah. Interesting. It, all, all the birds, um, they really play into what the birds eat. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not aware of parakeets <laughs> being remotely Man-eaters. cannibalistic, but it's like, I don't know, maybe they are. <laughs> I need to look into it now.
3: That would be a kind of horrifying because we consider them to be so cute, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's hilarious because mm-hmm. like we keep them as little like pretty pets that sing songs to us, but like given half a chance, they would choose to eat us. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> no, not given half a chance. Given the Given
3: we w- any chance. W-
2: no, 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 no. That That is, like I was saying before, creatures forced to live by the rules of man. Mm-hmm. When they are in concert with the natural order of things, they don't do that. But when you force them to live in a world that isn't theirs, then they have to evolve to adapt to be human-like. You're pushing them towards these unnatural urges, which in the grander scheme of things is war. But these mm-hmm. birds grow to walk on two feet and build a society together, so that they can like not starve to death. And I, they weren't—I don't think they were cannibals because it's fun. They were <laughs> cannibals because they live in a world that's so fucked that yeah. they almost like they—they they have resentment towards the creator of this world
0: yeah it's almost like they live in a world that is actively hostile
3: to their existence Mm -hmm. like i don't know being a human being (laughs) yeah dude it's (laughs) like the parakeets to me seemed like they were the ones that took the most not pleasure but um ran the most with what they were given their situation Mm -hmm. i don't know how you don't we don't know how any of the birds ended up there except that probably the magician uncle brought them there to pretty up the place because he thought the birds were pretty, I'm mm-hmm. guessing. And then I just assumed they flew through a hole at one point. That's well, also very possible because the blur- yeah, birds were all flying around there. But then like the parakeets seem to make their own society in a different way than all the other birds. And they were to the point they have a literal par- parakeet king who can and has talked to the magician uncle many times before. And like, there's a set of rules that he references having like, you know, this, this, this boy you know disobeyed the rules we had the we had the human here in uh in you know, the birthing chamber you know and they even say like they d- they'll eat humans but they don't eat people with babies they don't eat babies <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> know they have this other like converted set of, or twisted set of rules but the parakeets seem like the most kind of devious to me
1: they're they're the most warped and they're also the most proximate to the people. center of the yeah. world which is the tower that's where they live and um mm. You know, we're we're talking about how this takes place during a war. It's very particularly World War II, um, the fascist war. And Mm -hmm. um, World War II is never entirely far from any of Miyazaki's movies. Uh, And here, this is one of the movies where he's pretty overtly invoking like imperial uh, Japan or uh, I think particular Nazi Germany uh, imagery with kind of the banners we see towards the end. Yeah. Um, And... You know, like the parakeets are the most human-like, but it is this weird warped facsimile of humanity. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of that point earlier that, you know, people keep parakeets because they're pretty. Everything else seems like it was probably just native to the area and maybe flew in by coincidence. But I, I do like the idea that the uncle owned parakeets and they went with him. And that's why they had this close relationship. That's why they live in the tower, because they've always lived in the tower. Yeah, um, that actually and,
3: makes sense. Yeah. I-, I love that. Well, all right. Also, so, it's like their breathing sounds too. Like they're always going like <laughs> in the hallway. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even notice that. Um,
0: okay, so Mahito is teaming up with the Heron at this point. They are going to work as a team. They're going to get in the tower. They're trying to dodge all these all these parakeets. Uh, he runs into Hina. He has delicious toast, which uh, you know I, way I was
3: way too much butter. I was way
1: too much butter on that toast. I mean, but come on. Sometimes you just need a sloppy thing to eat and (laughs) yeah i was a kid that's how i made toast that (laughs) was how much jam i put on my toast yeah and like you said as a kid i mean that that is a very like child like thing to eat like like that's really letting yourself go like you know imagine being five and running into the kitchen and making yourself something it's going to be sloppy it's going to have all the stuff kids like piled on high um it was him just getting to be a kid You know, in this brief moment, not with his mother, too, which Mm -hmm. is adorable. Yeah, she was feeding him, but they're also getting to be kids together. Mm -hmm. He's able to be away from all the trauma and the strangeness of everything. He doesn't have to be mature. He gets to just be a kid and get a bunch of fucking jelly all over his face and make a mess. Fuck yeah.
0: I have a question. I, I apologize if I'm skipping something. But earlier you were talking about the scene with Natsuko where she is in the birthing chamber and mm-hmm. she says some like really mean shit to Mahito or whatever. You said mm-hmm. something about her being under a spell? Uh yeah, that's I'm I'm not sure how
2: to fully interpret that, but she seemed to be under that okay, that is a behavior exhibited by her that seems so wholly out of character. Uh we saw her in a slight delusion in the real world when she woke up and started talking about how she wished she had taken care of her sister better and didn't even recognize Mahito was in the room. So I was assuming either it was a spell or there's something making her delusional because she wakes up in that bed and then has like Satan's eyes and screams at the boy who she clearly has love in her heart for. And I, I'm not sure if that's a metaphor for like grief will make you act out and trauma will make you behave and say things that you don't believe and it does hurt people around you and that's why I thought it was a really sweet moment when, like I said, this is me abstracting it more to the metaphor but when trauma makes you lash out at the people that you actually care about and say things you don't believe at this point in the, our his journey Mahito responds to that not by crying and breaking down and feeling uncertain, but screaming that like he loves her and that he is going to like save her. And I thought that was very powerful.
1: And that's when he acknowledges her as his mother, Um, as his mother. Exactly. And yeah, I I don't know. My, my recollection of this wasn't so much that she was screaming at him. Maybe it's, it's kind of a, a difference with the dub, but that she was telling him, you're not allowed to be here. You need to get out. Um,
3: Oh, really? Yeah. So everyone that's not, else. That's not what they say in the dub. Interesting. She yeah. literally says, like, I hate you, or like, uh, you're not my son, something like that. Yeah. Uh,
2: everyone else tells it, him mm-hmm. that he's not supposed to be there. Like, as Hemi brings him, she's like, the stone doesn't want you here. Right. You shouldn't be here. But she doesn't literally, in, in the I, dub, doesn't say that. See, he's
0: that's like why I was wondering about the yeah. spell, Jesse, because my interpretation was fully The uh, phenomenon that we like to call go on, get I don't love you anymore and throwing rocks at your dog, you know, because you Mm -hmm, wanted to run away. That Mm -hmm. was kind of the vibe that I was. I don't want to say I was really getting that vibe. That was a vibe I was reaching for because I was so confused by what she said.
3: Uh, Yeah, I wanted to get that vibe, too, but I didn't get it because it's like. She, like, the way she wandered into the tower or into the forest, you know, when he went after her in the beginning was kind of not explained. And it's, I almost thought it was like something seduced her to be down there mm-hmm. and they wanted to steal her baby and, like, raise it in the tower. Like, the uncle wanted her, her unborn baby to be raised only in the tower world to make it beautiful or something like that. That's what I was kind of thinking. Well, I, th- um, I think he needs yeah. uh, an heir of his yeah, needs he An heir. And, right, yeah. right, right. That makes so sense. Yeah.
1: I, I think the idea was. Because she she enters the tower clearly under some kind of influence. mm -hmm. See, I did not – okay, that
0: that makes more sense, but I did not realize that. I I mean, Mm -hmm.
1: it's fair to interpret – like everything else, you have to kind of come to your own conclusion about it. But, like, she knows it's dangerous there. She knows that nobody's supposed to go in there. And, yeah, she just kind of – you know, in the context of being kind of sick and and dissociating and and maybe even hallucinating – she just goes to the one place you're not supposed to go. And I think it would be interesting. Clearly the Heron is trying to lure Mahito there um, maliciously, it seems. But uh, yeah, the wizard tells the Heron to guide them. uh, And and I think that he might just be trying to hedge his bets and saying, look, between my niece and her, you know, I don't even know what you'd call him. I'll just say her son or the unborn <laughs> yeah. child. Like, surely one of them is going to, you know, be able to take over for me, for sure. And, yeah, and like, maybe, like,
0: uh, maybe the little brother will
1: eventually. Yeah. You know, who
2: knows? For sure.
3: I I don't know what the stone
2: (laughs) represents, but they talk about it as opening up these portals and doorways to other, like, places. I thought
3: thought it was, like, an alien
2: stone from the meteor. Yeah, they they, say that. But, mm -hmm. I mean, like, in the functioning of the story, it's this thing that calls to people. And, like, I I think of it a lot as, like,
1: internalizing things. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it's, like, I I guess the metaphor I'd use is, like, you know, how the Powerpuff Girls were made of sugar spice and everything nice. And then chemical X or whatever mm-hmm. there, it, it's one of the fundamental building blocks of that reality. Um, and so it's like an extraordinarily powerful, like artifact of creation. Mm-hmm. And we, we see the scene where, when you know, the, the, the wizard first asks Mito if he'll take over for him, he says, those blocks are all tainted by malice. Yep. And later on you, you see, he's just got like a, an ocean of these stones. And he says, Oh, these are fine. And Maita says, "Well, but I'm tainted by malice. Um, you know, the scar is proof of that. And I, I think mm-hmm. that it it kind of doesn't clearly resolve whether or not Maita will eventually take over after him. He he just says he's not going to do it now, but he keeps mm-hmm. one of the stones. Um, he, he he keeps the connection with that place, and and I think with it the capacity to create to to sh- sculpt a reality. Um, For sure." It, that's one of the things that's so fascinating about this movie is that it, it's really hard to discuss the plot separately from the themes because they're just the same fucking thing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> I think for we sure. did an okay job. I mean, yeah, yeah.
0: we talked yeah. about pretty much everything. I do want to like point out that Hina got kidnapped by the parakeets. That was part of their like uh, fascist coup, I guess, as they were going to trade his daughter for concessions of some kind. I don't know. Yeah, There's like a Napoleon sure. yeah. parakeet who's sneaking around. He wanted more meat Fridays. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I'm gonna do a crime and fuck them up or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah.
2: He I Man, there's so much in this movie. We couldn't even possibly talk about it all. But the, the blocks are something very interesting to me. And I wonder if the blocks are how he I feel like he created a world and whether if it's if it's him dealing with trauma and these blocks are the tools he uses to deal with that thing he offers them to Mahito and is like this is all i've ever learned this is my coping skills like this is this is what i have to deal with the harshness and realities of life i get, offer you everything i have to deal with this and i hope that you can do better than i i can mm-hmm. and he rejects outright wanting to even work with the tools that this person has created it's um i i can build a i a better world cannot be built forged with the blocks of uh like an evil i'm trying to think of the right way to
3: say this like like tainted block it's like these blocks are tainted there's no perfection in these building materials and Mm -hmm. so like how could i build something perfect perfect when the Builder and the materials are inherently flawed. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
2: Like we talk yeah. about it in the real world where we're just like in the real world, how are we going to make all these things better? And it's like in reality with the systems that everyone else has set up to cope with all this stuff, we can't really fix things. If we're going to still work within all of these systems, like they do need to be torn down, completely reanalyzed and new systems need to be built up and put in place. But the reality is, of most things is we are forced to work with the tools provided and the systems and the rules and the laws, even though so much simpler things could accomplish so much more, but we're forced to work with the blocks of the people like who came before us. And maybe that last block that he got to leave with could be seen as that man's entire life was not truly wasted, but only one thing that he resolved in his heart and that he learned as an elder is really something worthwhile to take forward into this new world and it's cuz the other the, the other end of that would be everything you've learned and everything you've accomplished great uncle is useless to me and not worth taking forward into to build the new world i want but but then you get the one block where it's like I don't always agree with everything you did, but your entire life wasn't wasted. And I have learned something from you and I'm not going to just take all your advice and then run with that and try and be a better you. I'm going to take one deeply valuable thing from you and move forward and try and see what kind of a new world I can build from that.
1: And and the blocks are interesting too, because they're, they're very childish. They, they are basically Mm -hmm. like a, a child's blocks. They are like little spheres and cubes and, um, triangle like cones yeah. yeah like they and, and you know he, what he does with them is similar to what i think a lot of kids do with their playing with their blocks you can only do so much so you try stacking them but they don't mm-hmm. stack well like the, the the stuff is really not well suited for its apparent purpose which is creating a tower because yes. they don't fit together um, one, one of it, them is
2: a sphere yeah uh-huh.
1: it, yeah it, and it, and it's inherently unstable and and we see like just the, the sheer effort of keeping it all standing every,
3: every three days they have to rebuild it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's very intense. It's very stressful. And, um, I don't know what to make of that, but I, I mean, I, I I do think it's interesting that it's like grandpa saying, Oh, I I love this toy as a child. And you're like, okay, well that's great. I got a game boy, but, um, it's like, okay, well I love grandpa. So I guess I'll keep one as like a souvenir or something.
3: It's sort a of like great stress for him though. Like he's mm-hmm. like, you know, they have to be rearranged every three days and it's like, you know, that's like almost the only thing he can think about because it's the only thing keeping his world, you know, propped up is these ridiculous child's children's blocks that don't are not meant to stand up, you know, in the halls they are.
1: Yeah, I mean I I think that the, the uncle really found himself in this place as much as anything else. Um he Absolutely. He has a mastery over it. It is his world that he's created, but it's also connected to other worlds and mm-hmm. I, it, yeah, t- like
2: we were talking about the trauma and how mm-hmm. it
1: affects other people, and he
2: has figured this out as best he could, yeah. but he still is living in a world of fiction that touches so many other realities and people and hearts and souls.
1: Yeah, and, and like to me, the, the the essence of like a dreamlike quality is when something changes, um, but it feels like it had been that way the whole time. Like you, you start your dream in one location, and then the location changes to something else. But you don't perceive that something has transformed. Um, Something is new, and it has always been there. And I don't know. Talking about like the time stuff, like how long is three days in that world? I don't know. Yeah, how many eternities have passed? Um. Also, oh, sorry. No, keep going. I was just going to make a joke and say that. uh, On further reflection, I think this movie is all about how his. Son should have never made any movies, which he's very on the record about. And if, if his son was a better person, he would not have become a director. But his son sucks. Yeah. So he has to invest his hopes in the son's son, the grandson. Sorry, Gora.
2: There, there is a moment where the where the great uncle is like, you, you all must go home now. Yeah. And yeah, whatever I, you do, you have to do it quickly. And I, I think that is him also like reasoning with the fact that maybe – mahito should not be trapped here like to, mm-hmm. to to continue his legacy like i don't know it's there's so much
0: can we get to our final thoughts before we start rating and reviewing uh, maybe after a quick
3: break
2: And we're back. Uh, I'm really just trying to think of some my, my the, so we're, we, the world, the this 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 fictional world, great uncle has created is now collapsing because the parakeet king, Batista, which is wild as fuck, uh, is upset and and at how. Something so simple is the thing causing so much problem for his people and how insulted he feels that he was going to give it over to a child to solve the poverty and struggle that his people have to go through. And in his arrogance runs up and tries to stack these blocks completely fucks it all up and then cuts the table in half. Now our reality is unspooling and melting like candle wax around us. Our characters need to escape from this uh, liminal space of uh, processing and understanding of confronting the, the, the spirits of our past, like literally and metaphorically. I see so many themes colliding here where we have Kiriko, his mother, Himi, um, not, nope. Yes. And him and Natsuko, boom, all at uh, these dimensional doors about to leap back into their reality. And as Matt brought up, it's this mixing of uh, time uh, and, and, um, and realities where, I see this as like I said, all of this you're, you're processing gr- like whether it's grief or trauma, he has gone on this quest to confront the things that scare him most. He, in my opinion with the heron being uh, being his trauma calling to him, beckoning him to focus on it and to let it consume him. He ends up learning to work with it and around it. he convinces, the heron that they can live in concert together they don't have to antagonize one another the the fears of uh, of his mother are now literally confronted as she tells him you i'm not afraid anymore you don't have to be afraid anymore and i'm proud of you and i love you and i think those are things i think we can m- trying to think of the right way to say this you can speak to people that you love even if they're gone and i don't mean praying i mean when you love someone and you truly understand them in your heart you you do know them and in his heart he knows that his mother loved him and he knows his mother like wants him to grow and continue being happy and and It's interesting to watch that literally happen in front of somebody. And I thought that was very beautiful because I think it's similar to a lot of things like all of us. We all have moments like that where we wish we could speak to someone we can't speak to anymore. We have these unresolved feelings and just being human is messy and we get to watch how messy and complicated it is. And it's from all these different angles that at the end of the day, humanize everything Everyone in the story. Everyone's imperfect. Everyone has these struggles that call to them all the time. And then it's your choice. What you want, do you want to face them? Do you want to run from them? Do you want to invest yourself in them? Do you want to invest yourself in an illusion? Do you want to invest yourself in people? And from the real world, where people are forced to deal with their, their trauma by fighting, by participating in the war, by building parts for these uh, planes that are only made to murder, that is people being forced into confronting trauma, just not in the on their terms, not in the way that they want to. And... But that is one of the ways it happens. We don't always get as much agency over how we participate in these things as we would like to. And the final kind of question I think that comes back in the end is how do we live? How do you live? Like, what are the choices you're going to make when the hardships come that you're going to be proud of at the end or you're going to use to help other people. Are you, are you going to help the next generation? Uh, or, or are you going to offer them the tainted blocks of malice that you have been stuck trying to solve your problems with? And we, everyone gets to say goodbye. Everyone feels resolved Uh, uh, a older sister and her younger sister get to see each other once more and say goodbye. And as we burst through this, uh, doorway of, of, uh, understanding and resolution and new beginnings, um, people from all over time and space now go back to their lives, better people more, with, with less uncertainty perhaps, but hoping to move forward, offering the best they have to the people that they care about so that they may also prosper and move forward. And, and hopefully every step of the way, if one person can get one block untainted by malice, that's a new tool to help build something more beautiful than anyone could have by themselves. Um, and, and now we're back home and all the parakeets and the pelicans fly out of this doorway and the humans, a lot of people realize the father to the son, different journeys they've gone on. But the thing that is the most important in their lives are people and are caring for people. And this father that has love in his heart, but was an absent father has now spent days, question mark trying to find his son and his wife and as they burst back into his reality uh all, he is ecstatic they are all ecstatic to be back with the most important things in their whole life which are each other which are focusing on people which isn't being wrapped up in the problems of being human but appreciating being with humans which when you get together with people who are willing to face the hard truths that are willing to look inside themselves to better themselves, because we all live in a world full of beauty and nightmares. And if you're going to hide away and create a a world of fiction to deal with that, it is going to come back to bite you in the ass. You are going to separate yourself from the people that care about you and love you. And a man left his family and decided to grow old without them. And that was the way he coped. And he did not end his life happy. Uh, he did not feel like it was, uh, it, it didn't better him in the long run. He did try to understand himself better, but in doing so, separated himself from what I believe this story to say is the most important thing, which is people. From the little gifts you give people in moments of, in their darkest moments, which can be cans of food and tobacco people miss during a war. Like those are beautiful human connections that are natural and beautiful and important and, 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 and and not convoluted. Like the, 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 the more convoluted this, these, these scenes and these, these reactions and motivations get the farther they pull themselves away from the thing most of them, the the thing that they all seem to want most, which is human connection and happiness. And you're not go- there's no Disney World where you're gonna get that without having to deal with the horrors, the trauma, the things that are outside of your control. But the best we can do is learn how to deal with that healthily, process that healthily, ask people for help when you need it, learn how to deal with the yucky parts and the things that aren't sanded down to be palatable for our fake human world, but deal with the gross things so that you can help other people deal with the gross things. And the more you do that, I think the better everything down the chain gets. And that's kind of what love is. Love isn't isn't easy. It isn't just simple. It isn't all roses, but it's trying your hardest when you can to help other people try their hardest when you can. Because you can't appreciate the beauty and the depths of that beauty of connecting and loving people without admitting and not turning a blind eye to the fact that things are messy. Things aren't tidy. Things get scary. And just like hugs and love and gifts show how much you care for people. So do the fact that you put in the effort to face the darkness together. Um, and then you get shit on by a lot of birds. (laughs) By a whole lot of birds, which is also a weird, like, metaphor and symbolism that I'm still dissecting. Which is, I'm, what did you guys think about that? It's funny. What, what, it's a good bit. It, it is funny. It is very funny. Like, in a, like, you just saw a mother tell her son not to be scared and she loves him and is proud of him for the first time since she died. And then you walk out and then birds are just shitting over everybody, which is a good tension, like, relief of tension. But, uh, I did. Anybody have any thoughts besides very funny?
1: Well, it, I mean, that's the messiness of life. You you, you 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 don't get birds without bird shit. Um, and yeah, did, so you could say that about a whole mess of other things. But uh, <sighs> you're right. I
2: could have probably said that instead of ranting for ten minutes, but I did already. But you said it pretty succinctly.
0: Well, if only <laughs> if only we were the granduncle, then we could go back in time to before you did that. <laughs>
2: no. <Nope. laughs>
0: Well, we must rate and review this damn movie. It's time, and normally we begin with Patrick, but Matt is the guest, so we will begin with him. Now it is seven out of seven goods, seven out of seven weirds,
1: and seven out of seven greats. Okay, that's what you can do. Three scales. Okay, perfect. Um, So I'm going to go. Just kidding. Uh, I'm not going to do the tier thing. No, um, (laughs) I, I mean we've we've officially gone including the break over an hour and a half. So th- there's a lot that can be said about this movie. Um, I am very happy that this film exists. Um, I think that all, all texts to some extent, uh, do this, but especially the really great ones that what you get out of it will change depending on you, like where you're at in your life, what your experiences are. And I fully imagine that for the rest of my life, I'll be coming back to this film and, uh, having a transformed experience at each and every time. Um, this is the first Miyazaki film to be number one at the box office ever. Uh, thanks to no large smart and no small part to G kids, uh, for redistributing it instead of Disney for burying the movie over the course of exactly one weekend. So thank you, G kids. Um, yeah. and yeah, this is, this is a challenging textured film. It, it, it is not looking to be easily, uh, interpretable. Um, I am really happy that kids are going out and seeing it because, whatever they will take away from it, I'm sure it's going to stick with them. Um, This is the, you know, has famously tried to retire several times. This one actually feels like it it, it is supposed to be his last film. Um, I think it is very much reflective of his life and career as what I think most people would say is the greatest animator to have ever lived in the history of the medium. Um, And just trying to make sense of all that. I have no fucking idea what it would be like to see this as the first Miyazaki film, so that that is crazy. Because <laughs> um, to me, it, it is impossible to fully just consider this on its own terms without any of the biographical stuff around it. It, it, it. it is a very challenging movie. I'm really happy that it is out there. I'm really happy that we got to get it. Uh, so I'm going to give my alarm off, and I'm going to give it seven good, seven greats in Seven Weirds. Uh, woo! And that's me.
0: Patrick!
3: Yeah, I'm kind of also amazed that this is the first Miyazaki movie I've ever seen, or Studio Ghibli movie. <clears throat> it's got millions of layers in it. It is a very, it's a kind of a tough movie to digest after just seeing it one time with the amount of themes that it kind of opens your, that, that it shows you. And with it's light on explanation for a lot of things. So it's a, uh, I found it like a little bit difficult to kind of get a grasp on like what I was watching and what I thought about what I was watching. Also what was happening <laughs> in front of my eyes. Um, but it also, it it had depths and like emotional depth that uh, I was kind of surprised for this, for this kind of not surprised that animation can do that, but just surprised at what I was seeing, I guess. Um, but very well done movie. Um, also could not believe that was Robert Pattinson's voice for the Heron. I, I still almost cannot believe that was his voice. He did a really great job. Um, uh, yeah. So rating, I'm going to give it a seven out of seven goods. Um, weirds. Oh man, it's really weird. I'm going to give it (laughs) seven out of seven weirds. It's way weirder than Godzilla minus one. This is a, this is a really weird movie. Um, and then greats. Yeah. I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it uh, 6.5 out of 7 greats.
0: Um, as for John. myself, I liked this movie a lot. Um, I was going to go on a long rant about how the granduncle is a Landian figure and that this movie is about retro causality, <laughs> but that would feel a bit insulting at this point because we've already kept you so long. So I'll just suffice to say, I thought that part of it was interesting, the idea of things from the future going back in time and creating themselves is very fascinating, philosophically speaking. Um, And that sort of overlaps with a lot of the stuff that all of you guys have said. Um, I feel like I haven't said a lot, but I've just been letting you guys talk and you've pretty much covered everything that I could have possibly thought of and way more. Um, And I, I liked all that stuff. It was a thinking man's movie, as I like to say. Um, and so that for me was good, but the thing that was lacking was, uh, I, I found that large parts of this movie did fall visually flat for me. Um, and I know we're going late, so I'm going to try to be as brief as I can, but I have told people frequently that watching season one of jujutsu kaisen sort of broke the Ghibli spell for me where I realized that new anime is extremely well animated and well done. It isn't shitty like Dragon Ball Z and Naruto used to be, you know? Um, (laughs) so the Ghibli style is still fun and good to me, but it's not, um, as uniquely, um, like the animation itself isn't as like uniquely beautiful as it once was just because of how far those things have come. Um, and then on top of that, there was like there was a part where there was a room that was just like blank. Basically, it was a big, shiny, blank room. And I was like, come on, like that's they do that in like cheap anime. You know what I mean? When they don't want to draw something <laughs> like um, so there, there was it was visually boring, I guess, is the thing that I will say uh, compared to other Ghibli movies at less or at least. Um, so that's why my score will be. Uh, I think I can say seven out of seven good. It was definitely good and it was definitely weird. So seven out of seven good, seven out of seven weird. And then as far as great, I will give it four. Four out of seven for all of the uh, stuff that I mentioned earlier. What room are you talking about? Uh, the one where they have to like walk through it to like um, go talk to the grand uncle.
2: Yeah, the gap between the most important <laughs> place they go and the reality has created for it.
1: Yeah, that I, I one. Just, I, I want to say, John. Like every one out of a hundred opinions I hear from you, um, really catches me off guard, and, and I think this might qualify for that. And I very much appreciate that about you. Um,
2: that
3: is why we love you, John's Off the
1: podcast, <laughs> you
2: see and think things none of us would ever see or think.
3: I'm an instant uh, G- Studio Ghibli expert at this point, seeing <laughs> uh, seeing a total of one of the movies. <laughs>
0: Matt, I know uh, you have, but like Jesse and Patrick, have you watched new anime? No. Uh, and no.
2: I could almost definitively say without watching any of it, they couldn't hold a candle to this. And I would love to watch you send me some stuff to argue with that. But its, it's I, I can hardly imagine whatever computer tricks Jujutsu Kaizen pulls for their animation <laughs> is the... Uh, one minute of animation they finished a month on this movie when the most expert animators in the entire country of Japan, <laughs> trained by the most prolific fucking animator the country has ever don't get had. Sorry,
3: don't get Jesse started. We got to get out of here. They should improve their labor <laughs> practices. That's all um, I'll say.
0: Unlike Miyazaki, I am, you know, gracious to my employees. So I'm going to wrap things up so that they can go get water and go to the bathroom. And you can always email us at good, weird, great. Gmail. Oh, (laughs) has one of us not done it? Nope. Um, Oh
3: no,
2: my, I would like to say (laughs) that this is the most feeling I've ever felt watching a Ghibli movie. Um, because I feel like it is only moments to make you ponder feeling over and over and over again. Um, I, I think this movie was the movie Miyazaki let people have the most free reign over ever in his career. He's a notorious micromanager. He gives people key frames of animation. And then when they're done animating a minute or two, takes it back and tells them how he did it. They did it wrong and how they could do it better. And after correcting and micromanaging people for decades, this was the first project where by proxy of it going through covid and them having to work at home he then could not micromanage people to the degree he normally does and thus had to trust the jedi younglings that he has been fucking padawaning for decades so this film has the most collaboration the most expression from indiv- indiv- individualistic expression the most differential di- the m- the most different how do i say this and Visually distinct different art styles. Mm-hmm. Uh unlike how most other things do get smoothed out to be just his art style and just his vision. And with peak collaboration, I feel peak feeling. Um I give this movie 7 out of 7 across the board, uncontested. I think I might give it an 8 out of 10 great. This movie's fucking awesome. I agree with what Matt said. I am excited to watch it for decades to come. And as I bring new things to it, it will reward me with new things. Um, the only other Ghibli movie I feel that touches it in any way is Spirited Away. And it's really hard to compare something with a linear story to something with a
0: non-linear story. Um,
2: you were saying people can email us, John.
0: <laughs> yeah if they want they can email us at goodweirdgreat@gmail.com. at gmail.com they can follow us on tiktok the name is the same as the email uh please do email us uh we love hearing from you guys that's my favorite
2: tell and, john that he's right and
3: me that i'm wrong or <clears> the <throat> opposite
0: and until next time when you're lost in rural japan
3: oh no he turned into a small
1: budgie uh make sure you row your boat with your foot Make sure you're never down a man. Wada wada. Thanks for <laughs> water, having Wada <me> wada. <laughs>